Well, as was said earlier, we're continuing now with our second installment in our majority of the year-long journey through the epistle called 2 Corinthians. And if you've never spent much time there, I cannot uh, more highly encourage you to do so than to say you would be remarkably benefited for time and eternity to meditate on what the Lord has to say to us here. We're going to be doing that Sunday after Sunday, Lord willing, as I mentioned, for the majority of the year. And today, our portion falls to chapter 1, verses 12 to 14. So if you find that place, we'll read there in just a moment. The theme of this epistle is the power of the Holy Spirit at work in the local church. Spiritual power in the church. The working that God does among His people. Corporately. The book's written to the whole church, not just to an individual. That presupposes that the message in it is for the congregation, not only the individual. Of course, it's individually applicable, but the power that's presented to us in this book from God the Holy Spirit is experienced and applied corporately. The counsel Paul gives for these readers for how we receive the deeply comforting power of the Spirit. The holiness producing power of the Holy Spirit. The Jesus trusting. Obedience fueling. Self-denying. Gospel embracing. I just took those straight out of the chapters of the book. Power of the Holy Spirit in our lives is not to play to our strengths. But rather, to fall entirely reliant upon God in our manifold weaknesses. For then and there, Paul would say toward the end of the book, the power of Christ mightily rests upon us. Well, beneath that larger theme, spiritual power in the church, Today's text might surprise you because it's actually about how to boast. How to be proud. And those things seem antithetical to true Christianity for those who even know a summary sketch of who Christ is. The most humble person who's ever graced the planet. And what He produces in His people. Which is a Christ-like humility. So how can we talk about boasting and being proud and at the same time being filled with anything that's really the work of the Holy Spirit and His power. Well, it isn't about being braggadocious. It's not that kind of boasting we're talking about. Aren't those miserable people to be around? Not me monsters. This text today is not supporting anything that reeks in any measure of narcissism. It's a text rather that shows us what we should be proud of. How we should boast. How we should, if you will, brag. The answer is not in our accomplishments, but fundamentally it's in the accomplishment of God. In us. Through us. Among one another. Well, in short, we're going to be looking today at how to identify the grace of God at work in our life and in the lives of our brothers and sisters and at giving God the glory for eternity for what He has done. All that is squeezed down into three verses. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 12-14. to Our theme for the sermon today is our boast. Hear the Word of the living God. I'm reading from the New American Standard Translation. I'll pick up in verse 12. For our proud confidence is this. The testimony of our conscience. That in holiness and godly sincerity, not in fleshly wisdom, but in the grace of God, we have conducted ourselves in the world and especially toward you. For we write nothing else to you than what you read and understand. And I hope you will understand until the end. For just as you partially did understand us, that we are your reason to be proud as you also are ours in the day 
of our Lord Jesus. Join me again as we pray for God's blessing and help. Father, we ask You now to do that supernatural work that only You can do. By Your Holy Spirit, shine a spotlight on the face of Jesus through Your Word so that our hearts are drawn out to Him for worship and obedience. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Three parts of this little three-verse passage, it neatly breaks down almost perfectly into where the verse numbers fall. So verse 12, part 1, verse 13, part 2, and then the beginning of 14 will kind of smuggle into part 2 and then apply to part 3 as well. The first is this. When we think about our boast and it being a biblical one, a God-honoring boast, the first aspect of that is to boast of a clean conscience. Verse 12, for our proud confidence is this. Now, we've got to be careful when we talk like that, don't we? Because if there's no comma, if there's just a period, I'm proud, I'm confident, period. Pretty difficult to reckon that, to reconcile that with what biblical Christianity looks like. So we do have to be careful. But make no mistake, Paul is proud. And he is confident. There's not a period, it's a continuation of a bigger thought. But before we dig into that continuation, let's just dig into that word proud. And that word confident. In the original, it can be rendered this way. An act of glorying. Like glory verbing. It is kin to the word boasting. Which is why I've titled this first point, The Boast of a Clean Conscience. One commentator said, that Paul uses the verb and the noun form of this word very often to explain, quote, boasting in the form of human, human arrogance is sin, for the triune God must receive all glory and honor. Human pride must be banished, and God must be glorified. Christians, therefore, should never extol themselves, here it comes, but only glory in the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's just an abundance of verses that support that summary of the theological truth. Think of Galatians chapter 6. May it never be that I should boast in anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which I have been crucified to the world, and the world has been crucified to me. On and on we could go. Romans 5.11, Philippians 3.3, and on and on. Only boasting in Christ is what it means to have a God-glorifying brag. So is Paul boasting in something else here in this verse when he says, our proud confidence is this, the testimony of our conscience? Is he just one click off true north? Commandeering Jesus in His glory to be proud of Himself? In this case, Paul's boast or act of glorying is what he refers to, as I mentioned, verse 12, the testimony of our conscience. The our there, plural, is presumably Paul and Timothy, who chapter 1, verse 1 says, are the authors of this epistle. Paul is saying that he and Timothy, 1-1, have a priceless gift. And if you have this gift, or have once had this gift and lost it, you know how priceless it is. The gift of a clean conscience. Although they may have been accused severely, and they were. Although they have been maligned, falsely accused, they were. Although a lot of people had a lot of bad stuff to say about them, and they did. Paul knew that the Lord saw his heart and assessed his actions and observed his life. Paul is saying that he has lived with a wide open motive before the face of God. But not only what he wanted 
to do, which gave rise to what He did, not only His motives, but His actions, He is saying, are laid bare before the eyes of God, Hebrews 4, with whom we must give an account. And Paul is saying, with all my desires and all my actions drawn out of the closet and laid bare before God, my conscience is clean. And in that, he's confident that he was living a life pleasing to the Lord. Well, a song that should ruin a lot of you youngsters' lives for a long time, and a lot of you, like me, older ones, it should ruin and make you miserable for a long time. That is, until we come face to face in an honest reliance upon Jesus, that little chorus, oh, be careful little eyes what you see. Oh, be careful little eyes what you see. You know how it continues. Oh, be careful little ears what you hear. Oh, be careful little hands what you touch. Why? Because the verse ground, uh, the song grounds the, the reason in the chorus, for the Father up above is looking down in love. So be careful little eyes what you see. I mean, could there have been a better catechism lined up for today than the one Stephen introduced to us? See, there are 30 passages, 3-0, in the New Testament that deal with the Christian conscience. Having poured over them this week, I can only attest to you how convicted I have been. Having examined those 30 passages in their book titled Conscience, What Is It? How to Train It? And Loving Those Who Differ, Drs. Andy Nacelli and J.D. Crowley define the conscience this way. Our capacity for moral judgment. They go on to elaborate on that definition this way. Your conscience... Now, I'm going to use a different word, so help me to pronounce carefully, please, Lord. Your conscience is your consciousness of what you believe is right or wrong. And I do think that's a fair summary of the biblical material. So, do you have a clean conscience before God? What's the needle of your moral compass? Governed by. How do you determine what's right and what's wrong? Well, one of the gifts God given you is your conscience. Biblically, your conscience is not God though. So if you think something's right and God thinks it's wrong, you're wrong, God's not. Let God be true and every man a liar. Your conscience is not God. You may be very confident that something you think or want or do is appropriate in God's sight, and you may be sincere to the bone about it and be sincerely wrong. God is the final judge of your conscience. Your conscience is not the final judge of God. The God-given gift called your conscience that the Lord has entrusted to every person can be easily damaged. Do a search on the word conscience and you'll find that it can be seared like with a hot branding iron. So that the nervous system of your conscience is no longer sensitive to the right things. It can be hardened. It can be weakened. It can be oversensitive. So that you demand that others think things are right or wrong that you demand are right or wrong that God has never said a syllable about. It can be oversensitive. It can also be undersensitive. Your conscience can be broken. And once it's broken, you don't take two pills and call God in the morning and it all be okay. It takes a transformative work of the Holy Spirit to resensitize you to the work of God and to His truth. A biblically informed conscience is a gift from God. Sometimes that conscience in the most gentle and subtle way nudges you. And sometimes that conscience alerts you with a loud siren toward what obedience to Christ would and should look like. In our verse, Paul is saying his proud confidence is the testimony of his conscience. So under point number one, the boast of a clean conscience, there are three reasons that Paul tells us in verse 12 he has a boast about his conscience. 
The first reason is in verse 12. Our proud confidence is this, the testimony of our conscience, here it comes, that in holiness and godly sincerity, and then he gives two other reasons we'll get to in a moment, we have conducted ourselves in the world and especially toward you. So the first reason Paul is saying that his conscience is clean is not because he's the final arbiter of truth. He's not judge and jury. He doesn't get to say or dictate in and of himself what is right and what is wrong. He's saying there's a standard for my conscience and that standard is holiness and godly sincerity. Well, holiness is defined by the Holy One. It is true that God is holy. It is wrong that, God, that holiness defines God. God defines holiness. Holiness gets its meaning from God who is. God is of such pure eyes, Scripture says, that He cannot look upon iniquity. And whether Job's friends were right or wrong, they were wrong a bunch of times. I think they were probably right on this one. God is so pure, so holy, that even the heavens are spotted in His sight. The angels don't uncover their faces in His presence and they have never sinned. You'll turn into a puddle of liquid something on the floor of heaven if you uncover your sinful face in front of the holiness of God. God says, no man can see Me and live. His holiness is of such a quality that it cannot be explained fully or defined by anyone other than God. It is not something God has. It is who He is. For thus says the High and Exalted One whose name, whose description, whose self-identification is holy. And Paul said, God's person affecting my conduct gives me a clean conscience. I have conducted myself, Paul said, in holiness. And we're going to see in a moment, this is not perfection. It's not sinless perfectionism. Paul retained his depravity even after his conversion. But sin was no longer master of him. Christ was. So Paul had conducted himself in holiness, but he also says in godly sincerity. Well, to understand godly sincerity, you have to look at the opposite side of the coin which comes in the next phrase, not fleshly wisdom. So I said earlier, you can be sincere and be sincerely wrong. But godly sincerity is not just you meaning it. Godly sincerity is God meaning it through you. So you have to have a foundation. And Paul gives us a clue what the foundation of godly sincerity is by telling us what it's not. It's not fleshly wisdom. It can't derive from you. There must be a source from which your wisdom comes or your sincerity comes that's not your flesh. Well, what's the answer? God. Just like Paul's character had sought to strive to live in holiness before God and men, so also Paul's wisdom, the application of God's character in his life, the truth of God flowing through him, was sought to be founded upon God Himself and not His own flesh. Not in fleshly wisdom, but in the grace of God. So the boast of Paul's clean conscience before God was first manifested in holiness, and godly sincerity. Second, the boast of his conscience affected his decision making. I've touched this just briefly, but let's pick up the second half of it. The testimony of Paul's conscience was clean, not only because of his holy conduct and his godly sincerity, but the second phrase, because he, he didn't operate by fleshly wisdom, but in the grace of God. So, Paul's conscience was clean because of the way he made decisions. He made decisions, get this, by the grace of God. Now, we just made what a lot of people would probably and 
I think, accurately assess as a significant decision in the history of our 12-year-old church. I sure hope you prayed about it. Well, significant decisions, for obvious reasons, tend to lean God's people toward being reminded to pray. But that's not what Paul's talking about here. It's not just significant decisions in his life motivate him to ask God what God thinks before he makes a decision or acts. He's saying, I don't operate by fleshly wisdom. I do operate by God's grace. Well, how do you get into that fountain? How do you stick the straw of your life into the fountain of God's grace? The means of grace, the straw that you use, is prayer in the Word. And the way you get God's grace into your life, the way you get God's wisdom into your life, is by immersing yourself in His Word with a heart full of prayer. And so Paul says, that's how I've lived my life. Therefore, my conscience is clear. And the third way his conscience is clear is not only holiness and sincere godliness, not only operating and decision-making based entirely upon the grace of God, not His own flesh, but third, he says he lives this way everywhere all the time. His conscience is clear because he's not duplicitous. He's not relationally schizophrenic. He doesn't act one way over here and another way over there. Look at the way he puts it. We have conducted ourselves in the world and especially toward you. So Paul's saying, when I'm with you, you heard all that preaching and teaching, all that evangelizing and counseling. You've read my letters and I've come back to you and I've had this sorrowful, tearful letter and sorrowful visit. They knew Paul well. He spent 18 months with them. And Paul said, the whole time I was with you, I conducted myself in holiness and godly sincerity, operating not by my own wisdom, but by the grace of God. And you know that. Well, it'd be one thing to say, well, Paul was pretty consistent when he was in Corinth. But you want to know one of the most haunting themes of Scripture? Like the best way to mess up what you think about God and to find yourself in checkmate is read your Bible. You want to know one of the most haunting things about the Bible? Particularly in Paul's letters? The gap between what he said and how he lived was so small. And sometimes when we read the Bible, we see this enormous gap, don't we? I see what God says should be true of my life, but this is where I live. But Paul would go to this church and say, you want to follow Jesus? Follow me. The gap between Paul's life and full-on obedience to Jesus was not perfect, but was so infinitesimally small. That he could say, when I was with you, you know I lived in holiness. But guess what? That's how I live everywhere I go. I don't change based on my environment. I'm not a chameleon. My colors don't change based on the environment that I'm in. I'm not trying to fit in with the crowd. I live for the audience of one. Paul's saying that he sought to be the same man in private and in public. In the world and among the church. That the perception they may see when Paul was with them that he wanted to pursue holiness, to have the grace of Christ applied to his thoughts and his decisions and his actions. Paul said, what you see is what you get. I'm the same man all the time everywhere. And even if you don't think so, Paul's saying, my conscience before God is clean about that. Man! Oh, to have a clean conscience. Clyde Cranford used to say to me all the time, a clean conscience is like a well-tilled garden. I didn't know what he was talking about because I didn't garden until about two years ago and everything I planted died. I wanted to grow tomatoes because we like them in the summertime and uh, my family can mow them down and we got a grand total of two <laughs> out of our unwell-tilled garden and then that statement came back. A clean conscience before God's like a well-tilled garden. I'm not about to make a diatribe, an argument against uh, 
noisemakers and sound machines, but Clyde used to say to me, when your conscience is clean, you can go to bed at night without having to turn on the sound machine. Now, I'm not arguing against sound machines, but he said, we live in constant noise. You get in your car and you turn on your playlist. You get in your office and you put in your earbuds. You get home and you fire up the surround sound. You turn on the TV. You turn on your gadget. You listen to stuff all the time. It's just interference all the time because nobody wants to be quiet anymore. Because your conscience is just nagging you all the time unless you go to some escape hatch to make it stop. And Clyde's saying, you don't have to live that way. And Paul's saying, you don't have to live that way. You can live with a clean conscience before God. And you can turn off all the noise and nothing accuses you. What a way to live. Romans 2.15 says that the Gentiles who didn't even have the law of God involuntarily obeyed it because their conscience on the inside of them was telling them what was right or wrong, either accusing or defending them. And listen to this verse. On the day, Romans 2, when according to my Gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Jesus Christ. Paul doesn't think that his clean conscience is going to get him to heaven when he dies. But Paul totally believes that if you can't live clean before him now, you're an absolute fool to think that you're going to stand confident before him then. Paul's not perfect. I've already underlined he's a sinful man. He retained his depravity. He sought to live as a Spirit-filled man. Galatians chapter 5. He sought the fullness of Christ in his life. He sought to make others happy in Jesus, which comes in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 in our next sermon text. He wasn't perfect, but he was pursuing Jesus. But he really had his heart arrested on that road to Damascus by somebody who did have a perfect heart. And somebody who did have a clean conscience all the time. I said Paul's gap was haunting between what he said and where he lived because that gap was so small. But if you want to know something more haunting, you're not called to be like Paul. You're called to be like Jesus. And when you want to really be haunted, go meditate on stuff he said like this. I always do what pleases the Father. John 8.29 Never for a nanosecond did Jesus ever have an accusing conscience because He never did anything other than the pleasure of the Father. It pleased Him to please God. Now, I'm going to try to time out from sermon mode and say I think we all know already before we even press through to the next two verses whether we have a clean conscience before God or not. I think we all know right now the light is bright in our heart. And it really begs this question. If today's not going to be the day that you lay yourself as a living sacrifice on the altar of God in light of His mercies to you in Jesus, why? Why not? Why not full-on honest surrender to God? How much longer are you going to live in justification world and excuse the sin world and if you only knew what I was going through then blah, 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 blah. World. How much longer? Leads to our second point. Not only the boast of a clean conscience, but that boast is actually rooted somewhere deeper. The boast of living according to God's Word. This is verse 13. For we write, that's actually, well, more on that in a minute. For we write nothing else to you than what you read and understand. Read and understand. And I hope you will understand until the end. The boast of living according to God's Word. It's not braggadocious and it is a good kind of confidence to say, as best I know, I'm striving to live according to Scripture. I want that. And I can actually identify some areas in my life where that is actually a true assessment of my character. And that's what Paul's doing. 
He's encouraging them to do it, but by inference, he's saying that that's what he also aspires to. He's emphasizing that what he had previously written to them, that'd be 1 Corinthians, and as we said last week, the letter that preceded that, that would be this letter, 2 Corinthians, and the one that was written in between those two, at least one, we can tell that from 2 Corinthians. So he'd written four times to them. And he's emphasizing what he had previously written to them, and this letter as well, as well as the abundance of all the other letters he had written to all the other churches, particularly the ones under inspiration that are in your Bible, that they're aware of those letters. And another commentator said about this sentence, I love this, the Corinthians, Paul is saying, can not only examine Paul's conduct, he lived holy, he lived with godly sincerity, he operated by the grace of God, not only examine his conduct, they can also scrutinize his epistles. Those addressed to them and those that were also sent to other churches, which no doubt Corinth would have had access to several. Paul's essentially saying this, if you want to know what I believe, if you want to know where I stand, if you want to know what I think it should look like for somebody to walk with Jesus, read what I wrote. And then, I'm telling you, my conscience is saying to me, that's the kind of life I'm living. Man. Not only is Paul saying his conscience is clean in light of what he's written, he's also expressing that his hope is that the Corinthians will not just read his writings, but he says in verse 13 that they'll understand it until the end. This biblical understanding is not just cognitive. It's not just factoids going into your brain. It's an applicable understanding. God's truth seeping down into your character. Transforming you into Christ's likeness by the Spirit so that your conduct can also emerge out of your life so that you can say with Paul, well, I have a clean conscience too. The phrase is a bold declaration that the precious gift of a clean conscience, the kind that's worthy of boasting before the Lord and before His people, must be rooted in God's Word. That's how you train your conscience. You have one whether it's trained or not. You all have a moral compass. You all think stuff is wrong and stuff is right. Why you think so? What alarms are set off in you when something's off? What confirmation is given to you intuitively when you think something's right? You all have that. I have that. You're, it's a gift given to all of us. But it needs to be trained. Who's to say whose conscience is right or wrong when people differ in their estimation of things? On the issues that the Bible addresses as sin or obedience, the answer is clear. It's God's Word. So for example, if your conscience is unfazed, if you commit theft, big or small, much or little, it does not mean that you should follow your conscience and boast about how clean your conscience is when your hands are full of your neighbor's stuff. Why not? It means that you need to press your conscience into the Scriptures and your heart into Christ until your behavior matches God's standard. Then you can boast only after you return your neighbor's stuff. Like Zacchaeus did. Maybe fourfold. Then you boast of the blessedness of a clean conscience before God. You know what's more valuable than your neighbor's stuff for a thief? Rejoicing in Jesus with a clean conscience. Paul doesn't want this sort of biblically informed living that leads to a clean conscience to be short-lived. Look at the way he puts it. Until the end. Verse 13. I'm going to come back to that little phrase as I close in a moment because it's translated various ways and there's reasons for that. But until we meet Jesus, I believe Paul is saying we are to submit ourselves to the Word of God as the infallible standard for faith and practice. How biblically informed are you? Now, guilt trips do nothing for any of us. God doesn't motivate us by guilt trips. He motivates us by the Gospel. It's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. So when preachers, and I've been guilty of this, stand up and just badger people for how terrible we are at putting our life under the Bible, we all make big promises to God and go home and don't do anything about it. Because guilt doesn't motivate. It can for a little while, but it's not enduring. Instead of saying, why aren't you more biblically informed? Why isn't your conscience more saturated with Scripture? I do want to hold out to you a vision for what could be. Imagine you knew God's mind 
on every matter you ever faced, whether you had time to prepare for it or not. Imagine that every moment of every day in your workplace or home, in a spontaneous interaction or in a planned encounter, you knew what God thought. And you were able to take the wisdom of His Word applied by the grace of God in your life so that your actions accorded with the right appropriate response to Scripture. And at the end of the day, you could say, I know for sure I'm operating in a way that pleases the Lord. That's the vision I want to hold out to you. For which reason, we should immerse ourselves in Scripture to train our conscience. Finally, not only Paul's boast of a clean conscience from his conduct, Second, from submission to God's Word, which he appeals to the Corinthians to do. But finally, the boast of God's grace in fellow believers. I love this part. This is uh, verse 14 especially. In this verse, Paul is shifting from having a clean conscience because he pursued holiness and godly sincerity and exercise of grace-filled wisdom. That's verse 12. And because he had walked according to God's Word. That's verse 13. Now he's shifting from that to having a God-glorifying boast. Verse 14 calls it pride for what God is doing in the lives of other people. I'm proud of this. I said in the beginning, it's Miserable to be around braggadocious people, but man, it's awesome to be around people who are proud like this. Verse 14, just as you also partially did understand us, that we are your reason to be proud and you also are ours in the day of our Lord Jesus. Paul affirms that their understanding of his writing and the remainder of God's inspired Word is not totally off base. You partially get it. You're doing good. You're on the right track. Just keep going. Bunch of problems in the church at Corinth. We rehearsed those in 1 Corinthians last year. And Paul's saying, you're not pagans. I think you're truly regenerate. I think you belong to Jesus. And it's God's Word and your obedience to it and your response to it that gives me great hope that you're actually in Christ. He believes they're in Christ. You can read that in 1 and 2 Corinthians. He's saying you partially get it. Would that discourage you? One of your pastors walked up to you today and you're like, you kind of get God's Word. Paul means it as encouragement. You partially understand us, but there's more to it. While they're sort of understanding Paul's writings, they were not allowing the full application of his letters to sink into the fiber of their lives and into the fiber and fabric of the church. They were languishing in this same sort of biblical immaturity that he had already addressed in 1 Corinthians when he wrote to them those many, many months before this letter was written. And he said in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, I gave you milk to drink and not solid food, for you were not yet able to receive it. Indeed, even now you're not able. He's like, I want to give you more. I want to show you more of Christ's beauty and fullness and what it looks like for you to follow Him. You're just not ready for that. And as we say around here a lot, if you still live on formula, when you're a spiritual adult, there's a significant problem in your spiritual development. Simon Kistemacher's commentary said, when Paul was with the church at Corinth as their missionary pastor, they understood his teachings. But they were induced by others to cast aspersions on Paul to doubt him. They were confused. Their partial understanding needed to be enhanced and brought to a full comprehension of Christ. So Paul intimates that their partial knowledge must become complete through understanding his epistles. In other words, Paul encourages them, here it is, to understand fully and as quickly as possible. How much Bible do you want to have in you by the time you die? The reason Grace Church's mission statement is GGG, Guide, Grow, Go, is because not perfectly, not inspired, but we think a faithful summary, it encapsulates as tight as we can possibly squeeze it down without removing anything else or it's too tight. It encapsulates our understanding 
of what the Bible describes as God's purpose for His people's lives. Guide, grow, go. Guide people to faith in Jesus. Grow together in biblical maturity. And go to the nations with the Gospel. And to our neighbors with the Gospel. Guide people to Jesus. That's the first part. Go to our neighbors and nations with the Gospel so that more people know Jesus. That's the last part. But you've got to have something in the middle. Constant maturation by the ingestion of God's Word through prayer applied by the Holy Spirit so that our character actually becomes more like Christ. That's why I'm so encouraged that right now, not everybody will do it. We understand that. But you at least have the opportunity to go verse by verse with your church through the book of Exodus. You can have your own handwritten notes. We've talked about that in our vision sermon on Telehouse Academy a few weeks ago. Next year, Lord willing, it will be the Gospel of Mark. Last year, by God's grace, it was the book of Revelation. Before that, it was the Gospel of Luke. I mean, we can just keep going. That's the way to grow. And Paul said you partially understand, you need full understanding, and I think Kistermarker's right, you need it as quickly as possible. So I used to ask Clyde, use him again, how can I become more godly? You know what his answer was to me? I didn't like it. Live longer. But you've got to put some ingredients in your longer life. Prayer, God's Word, and His people. Those are the ingredients you must have if you really want to grow in Christ. Stop saying you want to grow. And stop, stop uh, lamenting how little you're growing if you're not a person of prayer, the Word, and with His people. Because you can say all day long to your blue in the face, you want to grow more in Jesus, and you want to mature, and you don't want to be partial in your understanding. You can keep saying it till you're blue in the face. But until you put those three ingredients in your life, you're only lying to yourself. And there's no way your conscience is clean before God. The upshot of verse 14, we are your reason to be proud as you also are, you also are ours. Paul's saying he doesn't merely want them to get into God's Word. He wants God's Word to get into them. I'll put verse 14 into my own words. Just a summary interpretation of it. The mutual encouragement that God's people receive when the ministry of God's Word through them affects the lives of others of God's people to the end that the Holy Spirit takes that ministry and causes the development of Christ-like character in my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ should for me be a cause of deep boasting in the Lord for time and eternity. That's my summary of verse 14. I get more boasting in Jesus if you get more like Christ in this lifetime. So I can put it a lot more simply. As God causes you to be more like Christ, I, if I've had any part in that, have more reason now and forever to boast in Jesus. How can I elevate my joy in Jesus? The answer is making you more joyful in Jesus. And the converse is true. That's what he's saying in verse 14. So that, now there's a new boast. It's not my conscience based on my conduct. It's not my conscience based on me and my Bible. It's my conscience based on you becoming more like Jesus. i got a question for you. Think of the names of two people right now who you have tried to invest in so that they will become more like Christ. If you can't think of two, it's time to stop telling ourselves that we really, really, really lament our lack of spiritual growth. He's saying this is it. We get to boast on the day of the Lord when people are more, I would summarize, conformed to His image. Think about the application of God's Word rightly embraced in the lives of God's people as a profound reason that we should have godly pride in God. 2 Corinthians 3, Paul's going to say to this same church, are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need as some letters of condemnation to commendation to you or from you? You're our letter. You're written on our heart. You're known and read by all men. You are being manifested that you are a letter of Christ cared for by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. He's saying, you're my boast. What God's doing in you. 
The great aim of Paul's ministry to the churches was this. Colossians 1.28 To preach Christ so that people would be complete in Christ. I'll never forget when that same man I keep talking about quoted a verse to me that I didn't know was a verse. I didn't know any verses. I became a Christian. Three months later, he started meeting with me. I knew John 3.16 and Psalm 23. That's it. And he started discipling me. And he quoted verses to me all the time that I didn't even know were verses. They just rung true. And then I later figured out why. Because he's citing Scripture. And I'll, I'll never forget when he cited this one. For who is our hope or joy or crown of exaltation? Is it not even you? In the presence of our Lord Jesus that is coming for you are our glory and our joy. That's what Paul's telling them. Look, I'm your reason to boast in Christ's presence on that last day, and you're my reason to boast. Let's make each other more glad in Christ. Do you have that kind of experience with anyone else who is in Jesus? I mean, have you ever sought to pray for and invest God's Word into somebody else for the sake of their increasing joy in God and likeness to Christ for this life and the life to come? Paul said to the Philippians, if I'm being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice. And I share my joy with you all. And I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. Saying, I'm trying to make you more happy in Christ. Why don't you try to return that favor? Because that will actually help you grow. It's a blessed thing when eternity captures our vision for life, isn't it? When our eyes are taken off temporal things and set on eternal things. That's what happened to the Apostle Paul when he met the Lord Jesus. In a verse that he writes of the effect that eternity had on his heart and what his deepest desires were for other believers, he would say it like this, in the day of our Lord Jesus, I'm going to be so proud of you. Doesn't that make you feel great? If an apostle would say, man, when Jesus comes back, I can't wait for how much joy I'm going to get at seeing how much more like Christ He made you in this lifetime. When spending eternity with Jesus becomes the dominating reality of the life of His people, then eternal things become the most important things to us of all. Jesus said, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and thieves don't break in and steal for where your treasure is. That's where your heart's going to be also. As far as I can count, there's three guaranteed eternal things you can invest your life in and wise people do it and Paul just told us what they are. God, His Word, and His people. And if you invest your life in God, in His Word, and in His people, those things will never be taken away from you. And a wise man strategizes his life to pour his energies and efforts, his prayer and his ministry into those arenas so that, quote, on the day of Christ, or when the Lord Jesus burst onto the scene yet again, in all of His resplendent glory, not one ounce of any investment we have ever made into those three categories will ever be lost. But think of how much chaff, how much wood, how much hay, how much stubble. It's just going to be burn up on the last day of this stuff we just put endless amounts of energy and investment to. I'm not suggesting at all that you going to your secular employment is not an eternal investment. That's not what I'm talking about. There is no divorce between sacred and secular for Christ's people. Because as the catechism said, Jesus is everywhere. All of life is sacred. What I am saying is, there's going to be a lot of chaff on the last day. And a lot of stuff that's just burnt up. But the precious, priceless gold rubies and precious stones of believers that we're going to get to lay at the feet of our Savior will endure for endless ages. And those jewels are not little hewn diamonds and rubies. They're people. It begs another question, doesn't it? Are you investing your life in those three areas? God, His Word, and His people. Paul wanted the Corinthians to know that his boast was a mutual one. It's a two-way street. They're His reason for boasting. He's their reason for boasting. That means that we have to give and receive the fullness of Christ into each other's lives. I'll close with this. What Paul is basically saying is this. 
Take your eyes off yourself. I think this is verse 14. Because the way to grow in Jesus, the way to glorify God, the way to lay up eternal treasure that will outshine the sun long after the return of Christ will belong to those who have sought to glorify God by treasuring Jesus Christ and spreading His eternal joy. He basically said one thing with three applications in this little three-verse passage. The one thing He said was, I have an unashamed boast to make before God. My conscience is clear about this. And the three things He said that supported the clarity of His conscience in the presence of God were, He boasted before God because He had conducted Himself in holiness and godly sincerity. And he had did it, done it all by the grace of God. Number two, he boasted in his clean conscience before God because he had sought to live his life in accord with the Scriptures. God's Word written. And third, he boasted in the grace of God at work in the lives of other Christians whom he had invested in through prayer, through time, through God's Word, pouring out his life for the increase of their joy in Jesus. So the application is the same thing. Is it not okay to ask ourselves if this is our boast? Can we say that I have the boast of a clean conscience before God? Because as best I can tell, according to God's Word, I am pursuing a life of holiness. I want my conduct to accord with the character of Jesus. Number two, can we say I have the boast of a clean conscience before God because I am immersing myself in His Word and seeking to live accordingly. And number three, I have the boast of a clean conscience before God because of what He's doing in the lives of people who I'm seeking to point to the all-sufficient fountain of Christ. I said that there was a hard phrase to translate and New American Standard, which I'm using, and the King James, which I'm using, translate it understand until the end. Verse 13. The ESV and the NIV translate it fully understand. So it's for time. ESV, NIV. For eternity. NAS, KJV. I don't think it's necessarily like which is right and which is wrong because the telos word can be rendered honestly either way and context is king and all the important things about biblical interpretation and translation. But I think what the Holy Spirit's doing is packing a lot of stuff in a little space. And he's just saying, for time and eternity, I want you to fully understand. But you know the one thing that will actually motivate you? I said earlier it's not guilt. This isn't guilt. This is grace. The end is coming. To ignore the end is not going to make the end go away. And if that phrase isn't clear at the end of verse 13, it's crystal clear in the end of verse 14. In the day of our Lord Jesus. Christ is coming again. I had the high honor of preaching two funerals for precious relatives this week, Tuesday and Friday. And no sooner than we know it, our own funeral day will arrive, either by our death or by the consummation of the ages when the King of glory Himself, Jesus, returns. The end, verse 13, or the day of our Lord Jesus, verse 14, is on its way. So let's be clear. The very same Lord Jesus who's going to return Nothing I or you could do to stop it. and Personally and preferably, I don't want to stop it. Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. Speed the day. Hasten His coming. That same Lord Jesus who is returning is the very One who shed His own precious blood on Calvary to release you from your sins. Revelation 1.5 By His own blood dying for you to make you right with God and to give you His righteousness so that you can be acceptable before God forever. This King of glory came to do all that was necessary to make you right with God for time and for eternity. To take away all your sins, past, present, and future. To make atonement to God for your crimes against Him. To propitiate God. To expiate you. And the reason that He's going to return, uh, pardon me, that this Jesus will return on verse 14, the day of our Lord Jesus, the way you can know for sure He's coming back is not a figment of like Christian's imagination. We're not like in hocus-pocus, fairy tale, hope-so religion. Maybe our Jesus will come back one day. You can know He's coming. 
And you can know so because He guaranteed it. When He got up from the grave, never to die again. A lot of people ignore Jesus. But one day soon, nobody will ignore Him. What I've been trying to say in this sermon is eternity should capture our heart. We should seek to live with a clean conscience before God. And I've been saying, we should do that through holy conduct and immersing ourselves in His Word and investing in His people. And I can seek to try to unpack as best I can in my little feeble efforts. I feel like this, <laughs> trying to say what this glorious passage says. But, but if I can't say anything and the Spirit didn't use me today to catalyze anything in your heart for eternal things, I do know this. Whether anybody ever hears my preaching or not, anybody ever knows this passage or not, somebody who lives on the far corner of the world, some remote island, one day soon, every single person who has ever lived will believe that a clean conscience before Jesus is the most important thing in the universe. And it's going to be everlastingly too late for those who have not yielded to Him in faith and repentance before that day. Have you ever come to the place in your life where you looked to Jesus by faith as the only one who can save you? Have you ever come to that blessed place of absolute trepidation and trembling fear that it is God who you have offended with your sin? That blessed and wonderful place of absolute ruin before His face. Only to realize that He's not looking at you with a scowl, but a smile. And He's extending to you not a scepter with which to smash, but a hand with which to receive. Have you ever come to that place where you've turned from your sinful self-deification and your sin-justifying answers for why it's okay for you to live however you live, no matter what God's Word says, blah, 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 blah. And your conscience has been submitted to Jesus. Have you ever come to that place where you've said, you're right, I'm wrong. You raised Jesus from the dead as proof positive that He can save even sinners like me. And I am now confessing with my mouth that He's Lord. And I'm believing in my heart that He's raised from the dead. And I surrender all of me to all of you for time and eternity. Dear friends, it's the only avenue for true spiritual power in your life. The theme of the book of 2 Corinthians, spiritual power in the church. The only avenue to true spiritual power in your life. I don't know how they stay in business, but it's not that palm reader shop on Union Avenue. It's not tarot cards or horoscopes. It's not other false religion, your personality profile, Enneagram, Myers-Briggs, whatever. No power there. Zero. There's nothing innate in you for eternal spiritual power. All you have to commend yourself to God only worsens your damnable predicament. But when Jesus Christ is your Lord, and you realize you are altogether incapable of producing any lasting good, and you throw yourselves, yourself into the almighty arms of an all-capable Redeemer, then you're hooked to the power source. And you start having desires for eternal things. And the proof, I close here on purpose because I thought, Lord, how do I leave the, these precious people with, with one thing? You want to know the proof you've given your life to that Jesus? You give yourself to prayer. You give yourself to His Word. And you give yourself to His people. That's the proof. That doesn't make you His. It reveals it. Let's pray. Father, I do ask that You give us that blessed gift of a clean conscience. You know I had 30 passages about the conscience that I didn't even touch. And You know how to touch the conscience whether I mention them or not. So for the glory of Christ, enthrone Yourself 
your kind, gracious, glorious self. Your tender, compassionate, full of mercy self in our conscience. And cause us, deep in our inner man, in that part of us that no MRI or no CAT scan can take a picture of, the conscience, that immaterial part of us, connected, woven into our soul, our conscience. God, cause our conscience to be clean before You on the basis of Your Word. And cause our lives to be wide open to Your people, the local church. So that when other people smell something that's off, we're ready to receive their help so that we can become more like Christ. And on the flip side, we're not only waiting, we're pursuing opportunities to try to make more people have more joy in Jesus. Help us do that, Lord. We ask for Your glory. In Jesus' name, Amen.